Hi, welcome back to PCI Power's podcast channel, Secure Payments. My name is Jane Goodell and I'll be your host for this episode, PCI DSS 4.0, Compliance in the Cloud. Back in 2021, PCI Power's CISO, Jeff Forsyth, joined me on the podcast to discuss designing and delivering a global cloud platform for achieving PCI DSS compliance. Providing listeners embarking on their own cloud journey advice on achieving and maintaining PCI compliance. Today, we revisit the topics and how achieving PCI DSS with cloud technology will differ when the updated version of the PCI DSS standard 4.0 comes into force. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining. I think before anything, we need an overview of 4.0. Can you please summarize the new guidance? Hi, Jane. Uh, It's good to be talking to you again. Um, PCI DSS version 4 uh, is due for public release uh, at the end of March. So it supersedes version 3.2.1, which was back in May 2018. Version 4 is still based around the original 12 PCI requirements that were identified in version 1, way back in 2004. Version 3.2.1, which was the current version until March 2022, and which remains a valid standard to certify against until March 2024, was um, 139 pages. You compare that to the original 12 pages of version one. And it covers the same core concepts, but with explanations on how auditors should be verifying the requirements and details of how requirements differ for the different types of entities processing payment card data, merchants, processors, service providers, acquirers and issuers. Version four, which has been repeatedly delayed, um, with our, I had its earliest feedback back in uh, 2019 um, in a, a request for comments document then where they stated that the final version should be, uh, is anticipated uh, to be late 2020. So here it is, it's finally live, but it's been pared back significantly uh, from what uh, the, the original draft of it. So it quite closely resembles version 3.2.1, but it does come in at a whopping 360 pages. Worth waiting for then. Uh, worth waiting. <laughs> uh, the summary of changes from version 3.2.1 to version 4 itself, the summary of changes is 40 pages long. Um, so so what's change, changing in PCI DSS version 4? Well, so as I mentioned, version 4 has been pared back uh, from initial ambitions to be more closely uh, aligned with the existing 3.2.1 version. Nevertheless, there are a few specific changes. Um, a number of controls have been renamed to explicitly include cloud-based solutions. So firewall rules have now been expanded into network security controls. And that covers things such as security group rule sets, uh, the ones that we use, for instance, within Amazon AWS. A number of payment service provider specific requirements uh, now place stricter controls on how PSPs like ourselves must secure cardholder data um, um, and how they must assist and educate our customers and internally review and audit our own compliance. Lots of updating uh, of technical controls and security vulnerabilities to match current threats and tools. So for example, user passwords no longer need to expire after 90 days if you're using uh, multi-factor authentication, but they do go from seven character minimum to a 12 character minimum for all users. Some things have stayed largely the same. 
Uh, version 4 will have new attestation of compliance documents and self-assessment questionnaires, but no specific changes have been announced beyond expanding them to meet the new requirements and um, the way version 4 allows meeting them. Merchant levels and service provider levels have not had any uh, declared alterations. So you've still got the four merchant levels and the two service provider ones. All existing payment card data forms and controls are the same or slightly enhanced. There are a lot of brand new requirements. So uh, each top level requirement, and there's 12 of those you'll remember, now has a specific requirement to document all the roles and the responsibilities related to that top level requirement. So you have to document who is assigned each role or responsibility and ensure that they are all understood by each person. Sensitive authentication data. Um, so that's the, uh, the PAN, uh, the CVV2, that type of information, uh, which is stored uh, pending completion of a payment authorization, now has stricter data minimization and crypto cryptography controls associated with it. Uh, remote okay. access to the card data environment must be more programmatically limited to prevent the copying and moving of, of PANs. We'll talk a bit more about that later. Previous best practice advice um, has now become mandatory. For example, hashing uh, and PCI scope have become formal mandatory requirements when they weren't in 3.2.1. Risk assessment has been expanded to cover more systems. Things such as cryptographic keys, frequency of scanning, uh, internal reviews of new vulnerabilities and phishing uh, have now, now been brought in and all have to have formal risk assessments. Web application firewall solutions have become mandatory um, and they will need to be mandatory by March 2025. Uh, and that's for all public facing websites, as opposed to just um, doing vulnerability scanning to, to cover that need. Multi-factor authentication has become ubiquitous. There's a uh, there are also some great requirements in place specifically for multi-tented cloud solutions, people like PCI Pub. Um, and there is a new customized approach. So version 3.2.1 and previously they had compensating controls uh, where you can document a specific business or technical justification as to why you need to use an alternative method or of equal or greater effectiveness to meet any specific requirement. Version 4.0 has replaced this with a customized approach. So it's basically the same, save without a need to justify why the original approach wasn't used. In practice, um, this means each control has been clarified with more explicit objectives to allow companies to understand and address the underlying security concern. However, a few specific requirements explicitly must be met by the defined standard approach. So you can't use customized uh, customized approaches with them. Uh, and they, so they're not permitted. Both require your QSA's review and approval, and your QSA may add additional controls or criteria for the audit and confirmation that these alternative me measures are doing their thing. They cannot be done anymore as part of a self-assessment, only as part of a QSA uh, auditing the compliance system. So that's about it, Jane. Thanks, Jeff. So it sounds like Compensating controls are out and customised approach is in. Correct, yeah. Okie dokie. So uh, can you give the listeners um, a brief recap of what prompted PCIPAL to move to a public cloud operation, uh, which we did in uh, 2016? Uh, 
Yes, of course. Um, so back in 2010, uh, we were running PCI PAL service out of three dedicated data centers located within the UK. So this worked really well for UK-based companies who could easily integrate into our local telephony systems to pass secure calls through our platforms. But by 2015, we're seeing, we were seeing a big demand from US companies for a compliant telephony platform in the States. But the problem right. was, you know, how do we deliver it? You know, the UK platform um, has large interconnects into BT and Vodafone telephony exchanges. So how could we replicate that type of interconnectivity uh, in America? Well, the short answer was to virtualize it all, um, convert the telephony to VoIP and host it in the public cloud. So it's a big step to take, okay? I mean, the public cloud infrastructure is totally different to traditional tin spinning in local data centers. Um, using one of the big public cloud companies does give certain advantages though, when it comes to security and compliance. These companies have spent billions of dollars on ensuring that their hardware infrastructure is secure and meets the numerous global legal compliance standards. So, you know, it, it meant that we could piggyback uh, on the systems put in place to protect big players such as Facebook, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, Netflix, and Apple, for example. Levels of security that normal sized companies could never afford. So this means uh, you get the latest technology without a costly investment in hardware and software. You get access to a greater range of technologies and security resources, and you can leverage the skills and knowledge of the cloud provider's security teams. So it took us just under two years. Um, we started with a blank sheet of paper and uh, we worked with industry experts and our QSA, of course, to redesign the PCI PAL platform from the ground up using state-of-the-art cloud technologies. Uh, we launched the cloud solution uh, in the UK in October, 2017, and the US platform followed three months later. Then Canada, Australia, and a European platform at three monthly intervals thereafter. So it would have been possible to do such a thing using a traditional private data center. And uh, integrating into local telephone exchanges is totally impractical within each country. Great, thanks, Jeff. So that's kind of taken us through what prompted our decision to uh, look towards a public cloud operation. But out of the public cloud company market, when we last spoke, we went through some of the main players such as Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. Um, we also discussed why Amazon was the best fit. Do you think this has changed now? Um, and also, what advice do you give customers um, at the cloud provider stage of their journey? Okay, um, Amazon are still the best fit for us. Um, back in July 2019, when I did my original talk, um, if you remember, uh, AWS had 21 regions uh, around the world and 66 availability zones. Um, since then, the pace of AWS building new data centers and pushing into new regions has continued unabated. They now have 26 regions, so that's up five, and they now have over 84 um, availability zones. So that's right. up 18 on that 2019 figure. Quite um, a jump. It is. I showed at the time, I showed the um, the Gartner Magic Quadrant uh, for public cloud infrastructure. Um, and that had uh, uh, Amazon, AWS, Microsoft, and Google as the top three players. Um, the latest Gartner Magic Quadrant, which was uh, back in June 2021, uh, shows that AWS has maintained its lead uh, at the top. Okay. Um, 
there's been a lot of consolidation though, and there's now really only seven players in the public cloud space. Um, so the rise of, of China's public cloud infrastructure continues with uh, Alibaba Cloud and Tencent Cloud now in that top uh, seven mix, along with Google, Azure, and AWS. Mm -hmm. um, Google Cloud and Microsoft uh, Azure, they've not stood still either over the past three years. Google are up to 29 regions and 88 zones, and Microsoft now have over 200 physical data centers in their network. So competition is fierce, and they're all competing to be more efficient and uh, and greener, actually, than each other. So speaking of which, Amazon have uh, stated that all of their data centers globally will use 100% renewable energy by 2025. When it comes to deployment model, Jeff, does the introduction of PCI version 4 change what is the most efficient option you choose? Good question. Uh, well, you'll remember we discussed the standard three deployment models. There's infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and software as a service. So the question was, did we go for IAS, infrastructure as a service? And that's where... Uh, the customer has the capability to utilize uh, the cloud provider's basic systems, so processing, storage, networks, and other fundamental computing resources. Uh, and they deploy and run operating systems and applications and other software on top of that. Um, next up, there's platform as a service, um, so P-A-A-S. Um, and that's the um, capability for the customer to deploy their applications, which they may have created or maybe they, they've acquired, uh, onto the cloud infrastructure that's already there. Uh, so, they, so this is using programming languages, libraries, services and tools, etc., um, supported by the provider. Uh, and on the top level, there's software as a service, so SaaS. Uh, and that's the capability for customers to use the provider's applications running on a cloud infrastructure. So the applications are accessible from various devices through um, thin client interfaces such as web browsers or through an API programming interface, for example. So, so famously, Office 365, Salesforce, Dropbox, Sage, they're all software as a service applications. So you have no access to the code. You just have a web interface um, uh, that does its thing. So as I mentioned, PCI DSS version 4 has updated its terminology throughout to include cloud-based solutions. So, for example, firewall rules have been expanded into network security controls, uh, and this covers things such as security group rule sets that are used within cloud providers like AWS. Um, on top of that, of course, it still applies that compliance is always your responsibility and not the cloud providers. They look after the security of the cloud. So that's the global infrastructure of regions, availability zones, edge locations, along with the basic services, you know, like computing power, storage, database, and network. It's the customer's responsibility to manage security in the cloud. So that's the likes of operating systems that they run, data encryption, network traffic protection, applications, identity management, customer data, and so forth. PCI PAL opted for an infrastructure as a service model, so IAAS. But we added some platform as a service items such as AWS Lambda uh, on top to sort of improve fault tolerance and reliability of our platform. Okay. Okay. Nowadays, I would go more PaaS platform as a service uh, and use services such as containerization to go completely serverless. So many cloud services are nowadays 
serverless. So this means that the cloud provider runs hundreds or even thousands of servers in the background, and these machines share the processing load, breaking any queries and subroutines down into micro runtime commands. Each server spending mere milliseconds processing their little bit of code before passing the result back to your system. In that way, extra resilience is gained. Uh, for instance, if a server processing your micro routine fails to respond within a few milliseconds, a second or third server can pick up the load and deliver the result in just a few tens of milliseconds. Of course, it is important to check that whatever pass service you implement has been certified PCI compliant by the cloud uh, platforms QSA. PCI DSS version 4.0 has an uh, Appendix A1 called Additional PCI DSS Requirements for Multi-Tented Service Providers. It's quite a mouthful, isn't it? That specifies that logical separation must be implemented such that providers cannot access its customer's environment without authorization. And the reverse is also true, that customers can't access the provider's environment without authorization. It is good practice for the provider to ensure strong separation between areas that are designed for customer access, places such as uh, configuration and billing portals, for instance. Additionally, it's important that as it's multi-tented, that one customer cannot access another's card data environment. This separation needs to be tested and confirmed to be in place once every six months by running penetration testing. We also see the requirement added for customers to easily be able to report any vulnerabilities and security misconfigurations that they may notice. Particularly important as a vulnerability affecting one customer is more than likely to affect all customers within a multi-tented cloud environment. Okay, thanks, Jeff. So uh, you've picked Amazon AWS and are adopting an infrastructure as a service model or a it pass model, um, kind of utilizing that um, platform as a service model too. Yeah. How do you write your software and get it uploaded onto the cloud platform? And furthermore, does this differ now, more so now than before when we spoke? Uh, good question. It does differ, differ slightly because we've, we've evolved over the last couple of years now. I'll get to that in a moment. So getting your software up into the cloud uh, in a compliant manner can be broken down into a number of steps. Obviously, you have to write and develop your own code. Um, you have to use hardened operating systems as part of PCI DSS requirements. Um, and you use those hardened operating systems to create a deployment machine image. Um, you then use that machine image to deploy running server instances uh, in each region in a secure virtual private cloud. Um, you then configure security groups to tightly control access to running instances uh, and virtual private cloud components. Um, and then you finally, you create infrastructure as code routines to automate the deployment process uh, to eliminate configuration errors. So how do you protect your own bespoke code running on your own virtual servers within the cloud? Well, the answer is to use VPCs, virtual private cloud. So a virtual private cloud is a, a virtual network um, dedicated to your Amazon AWS account. So it's logically isolated from other virtual networks uh, that are running in the, in the same cloud. 
Um, you can launch your AWS resources, such as web servers and telephony servers, as instances within your VPC. You can specify an IP address range for the VPC. You can add subnets. You can associate security groups. And you can uh, configure uh, routing tables. Um, so a subnet is, is a range of IP addresses that's within your VPC. Um, you can launch AWS resources into specific subnets. So, so if you use a public subnet for resources that you must connect to the internet, and you'd use a private subnet for resources that you don't want to be connected to the internet. Access to the VPC and secure communications within and between VPCs is 100% controlled by you, the customer. So it's critically important to ensure you have it locked down tight. So within PCIPAL, we took the decision to create various uh, VPCs. So um, dedicated virtual private clouds were created for admin, for the agent web interface, and for telephony connections. So one advantage of a VPC is that it can span multiple data centers within an Amazon region. So this is each data center is a availability zone. So if one data center fails, the service can continue to operate. So now we have a couple of virtual private clouds running, uh, and it's time to deploy servers within them. So Amazon offers a large variety of virtual machi machine images, um, which Amazon call, call AMIs, and Amazon machine image. Um, and these are available in its marketplace. So you use a simple launch wizard uh, to spin up an AMI into a dedicated machi machine instant, instance uh, running on your VPC. Um, so all the servers that you spin up and you install within a VPC, they are, of course, subject to the usual PCI DSS rules. So you know, as we previously stated, compliance is your responsibility and not the cloud providers. Um, this means that those machine images you spin up into instances uh, need to have, that uh, must be hardened as dictated by PCI DSS requirement 2.2. Uh, system components are configured and managed securely, and they must be regularly patched as required. Um, this requirement was previously item 6.2 in PCI DSS 3.2.1, but has become requirement 6.3.3 in new PCI DSS version 4. Again, the cloud provider can help with this. Amazon AWS, for instance, they provide pre-hardened machine images for various operating systems. These uh, AMIs are automatically updated to include the latest software updates and patches. So once a, a month, you can relaunch your servers using the latest AMIs and the associated operating systems will include all the latest and greatest fixes available. As for the actual, as for the actual creation of the software itself, well, so we employ a whole stack of software engineers to do just that. Uh, these guys have been trained in secure software writing techniques, OWASP top 10, secure coding, etc. Additionally, uh, we use software analysis tools such as SonarCube to analyze the code in real time and look for anything that could lead to vulnerabilities. Code is written in a series of modules that are effectively branches uh, of the existing code. When a new deployment is set to go, the new branches are integrated into the core code software, such as SonarCube um, and GitLab. Uh, they analyze the code for security flaws, and they prevent bad code from being merged, uh, raising alarms as part of the build process. Um, so we have a code repository. Uh, originally, we were using uh, one called Plastic, 
uh, and um, as we've gone more serverless, we've moved over to uh, GitHub and Docker uh, for okay. our repositories. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a thing called a continuous integration server that that pulls the code uh, and pushes it into AMIs, uh, and the system we use is called Jenkins. Um, and we have an Amazon AMI builder, which is a thing called Packer, which uh, that's, that reaches out and takes the latest hardened server images that are provided by Amazon with all the latest updates in, and it incorporates our application code that we've written inside of it. So the whole thing is uh, built on an agile development cycle. So we have uh, fortnightly sprints uh, as we run through um, the process. Um, on top of that, to actually upload everything into the cloud, we use a system called Infrastructure as Code. Um, now, the system we use, um, initially it was Terraform. We still use Terraform, but we also use AWS CloudFormation as well. But there's other systems like, like Chef, uh, and they automate the deployment um, uh, of your code into the cloud and ensure that nothing gets missed out or accidentally misconfigured due to clumsy fingers. Um, so you want to have a series of cloud platforms, of course, uh, one for code development, one for testing, one for your customers to play around in a sort of sandbox uh, and a live production one as well. Great. Thanks, Jeff. I love the fact that we have clumsy finger protection. So uh, all good. I need, I need that. Um, Are there any extra processes now in place um, since the um, updated standard um, to ensure the virtual infrastructure in the cloud is locked down tight and protected from hackers? Um, Lots of extra processes uh, in PCI DSS version 4 that are applicable to cloud computing as well as general uh, company-owned and hybrid infrastructure setups. Um, As mentioned sort of earlier on in the podcast, each top-level um, requirement now has has a specific uh, requirement to document all the roles and responsibilities related to that top level requirement. Document who is assigned each role of responsibility and ensure that they're understood by each person. So that means that each department within a company will have to take a documented share of responsibility for ensuring compliance. So that's infrastructure engineers, software developers, infosec, product development, HR for training staff, of course, management, all need to get involved. Um, Remote access to the card data environment must be more programmatically limited to prevent copying or moving of PANs. So this is a new rule, uh, rule 3.4.2. So it's all about ensuring that credit card, that data, the number on the front of the card, et cetera, uh, three digits on the back, cannot be copied or moved into unauthorized locations on storage devices uh, when accessed from virtual desktops. Uh, you uh, you could, for instance, end up with a copy of card data being temporarily stored on a local hard drive or, or USB drive. And again, that's all very carefully controlled now. Uh, lots of extra processes in PCI DSS version 4 uh, that are applicable to cloud computing are there, as well as general company-owned and hybrid infrastructure setups. So as mentioned earlier on in the podcast, each top-level requirement Uh, There's 12 of those, of course, now has a specific requirement built into it to document all the roles and responsibilities related to that top level requirement. You have to document who is assigned each role or responsibility and ensure that that these are all understood by each person. So this means that each department within a company will have to take a documented uh, share of responsibility for ensuring compliance. So it's not all down on the infosec's shoulders anymore. 
So infrastructure engineers, software developers, infosec, of course, uh, product development, HR, to train up staff and, and management all must be documented and uh, signed so that they understand their role. Um, remote access to the car data environment uh, must be more programmatically limited uh, to prevent copying or moving of pans. So this is a new rule, rule 3.4.2. Um, so this is all about ensuring that um, credit card data, uh, the 16 digit number on the front of the car, the three digits on the back, that data cannot be copied or moved into unauthorized locations on storage devices uh, when accessed from a virtual desktop. Uh, you could, for instance, end up with a copy of card data that you've been um, accessing uh, via a virtual desktop being temporarily stored on a local hard drive or a USB drive. So that has to be carefully controlled and is banned. Uh, sensitive authentication data um, stored pending completion of a payment authorization now has stricter data uh, minim uh, minimization and cryptographic controls. So these are new controls, uh, 3.2.1 and 3.3.2. Um, so uh, it is now considered good practice that collected PAN and security code information that is being temporarily stored electronically prior to being sent off for authorization, it must be encrypted. Uh, and, and again, encrypted with a different cryptographic key than is used for storage of uh, data post authorization. Uh, risk assessments to cover more systems uh, are in place. You have to do risk assessments on cryptographic keys, on frequency of scanning, uh, internal reviews of new vulnerabilities, uh, phishing, etc. Um, another big, a big cloud thing that's come along now is uh, web application firewall solutions are, are becoming mandatory by March 2025. Um, um, previously, you could use vulnerability scanning to cover these needs, but this is again a new requirement for WAFs 6.4.2. So a WAF is a web application firewall. Uh, it helps protect web applications by filtering and monitoring HTTP traffic between a web application and the internet. So it typically protects web applications from attacks such as cross-site forgery, cross-site scripting, file inclusion, and SQL injection. So WAFs are not a 100% defense mechanism, but they're usually part of a suite of tools which together create a holistic defense against a whole range of attacks. By deploying a WAF in front of a web application, uh, so a shield is effectively placed between the web application and the internet. Um, so again, our listeners, they'll know about proxy servers, which protect a client's machine's identity by using an intermediary. Um, a WAF, of course, is a type of reverse proxy. So it protects the server from exposure uh, by having clients pass through the WAF before reaching the, the web server itself. Um, Multi-factor authentication becoming ubiquitous. So all access to the card data environment must use it. So um, I say that the, the plus side of that is it does mean that passwords don't have to be changed quite so often, but of course they must be slightly longer. Uh, we've talked about this greater requirement for multi-tenanted cloud solutions, this new appendix uh, A1 to the standard. So uh, just to go over that again, as well as ensuring that tenants of a cloud provider cannot access each other's data or gain access to the cloud provider's administration environment, additional rules stop the cloud provider from accessing the tenant's uh, environment without authentication. Again, six-monthly penetration testing is mandated to ensure that the logical separation of tenants is working. If a tenant discovers or suspects that they found a security flaw or a bug, 
in the cloud provider's platform, then they must have mechanisms to quickly report that to the cloud provider. Uh, the cloud provider must have prompt forensic investigation capabilities ready to analyze such an event and fix it as necessary. This includes having separate audit logs available for each tenant, as well as having audit logs for common third-party applications. Thanks, Jeff. So uh, thanks for going through those additional processes. Have data sovereignty issues um, of deploying in multiple different regions changed at all? Okay, so data sovereignty, it's not strictly PCI compliance, uh, but data sovereignty is an additional challenge, particularly knowing where your data is uh, at any moment in time. Uh, data localization laws uh, require data to be processed, usually within a particular territory. So in the EU, there's the GDPR to consider. Uh, some countries require multinational companies to host data about their citizens on a server hosted within that country. Uh, in North America, it's important to keep Canadian data separate from United States data, of course. Um, but additionally, sometimes it's not a legal requirement, but a contractual one. So, for example, uh, a public body may insist when putting services out to tender that the solution is hosted locally within the, their country. Um, we have adapted our platform over uh, the period uh, to remove global databases and global storage of logging uh, for support desk work. Instead, now we're, we use a local reporting logging system located within each region. Uh, additionally, we ensure that anything that could be construed as personal data is redacted. So for instance, uh, we tr truncate telephone numbers within our support logs. So before we wrap up today's episode, um, will routine maintenance checks differ after the introduction of PCI uh, version 4? That's a good question. Uh, the new standard defines a lot of daily, weekly, monthly requirements as part of uh, a business-as-usual approach. Um, um, there's added guidance and clarification throughout. Uh, so, for instance, new requirement 1.2.7 clarifies that reviewing configuration of network security controls must be carried out at least uh, once every six months. Uh, generally, more documenting of systems is to be done. So maintaining an inventory of trusted keys uh, and, and certificates, for instance. Also, maintaining an inventory of, of bespoke and custom software, as well as evaluating all components and defining those at risk from malware attack. Uh, PCI DSS version 4 also asks for a list of components that you consider tucked away and safe from malware attack. Uh, this list has to be regularly re-evaluated to ensure none of those components have moved into areas where malware can get to them. Uh, and there's a new control 7.2.4 which mandates a review of all user accounts and restricted access rights at least once every six months. So business as usual checks um, are based upon risk assessment. Um, so, for instance, new rule 5.3.2.1 um, defines the frequency of periodic malware scans. And again, that's based upon risk assessment. Thanks, Jeff. It's been really interesting to chat to you again about compliance in the cloud, especially um, now we're looking at uh, how that's impacted by the release of PCI 4.0. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Remember to like and subscribe to our channel and for more material on data security and PCI compliance, check out our Knowledge Centre at PCIPower.com.